0: Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Joe Minoc, who serves as vice president for university advancement at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. Welcome, Joe. Welcome.
1: Welcome to Worcester. And thank you for pronouncing it the right way.
0: Well, my brother attended the College of the Holy Cross, so none of that Worcester stuff for me. It is just Worcester. All right. Thank you Uh, for having me. Well, Joe, it's uh, really a pleasure to host you. We've had the opportunity to spend time together uh, significantly here over the last six months plus, but uh, have had the chance to ever cross paths many, many times over the years. And so uh, eager to be able to learn more about your story, your journey, and share that with our uh, audience and also uh, highlight some of the exciting things that are going on at Clark. And so like I will, uh, like I have with many of our guests, I'd love to just know a little bit more about your own higher education journey. So maybe take me back to high school. Who was that Joe? What was he into? And what led you to American University of Beirut? Yeah,
1: uh, it's it's a story I told only like probably a couple of times in the past. So, so this is the first time I'm publicly saying it. Uh, I was 16 years old. My family income was around $300 a month. And I convinced my mom and dad that, like, we really needed to buy a computer in 1998, 1997. So so, uh, we ended up buying a Pentium One, which was like 586 DX4. And And we ended up, yeah.
0: Where are you, Joe? In Beirut, Beirut,
1: Lebanon. Yeah. Six years after the civil war ended and, like, still, like, 16-year-old in high school trying to figure things out. And I ended up buying a $1,500 computer, which like I had to work so hard to pay the, the installments on. And I became obsessed with programming. And at the same time, I didn't have money to go to college.
0: Can I just ask, what, what did you do? How did you come up with the $1,500? That's, that's a lot uh, in that context.
1: I think it was my first fundraising project. so So it was a combination of working... Few summers in the past, and saving that money, getting some money from my parents, and then like making installments on the on the on
0: the computer itself. And why were you so excited about getting a computer? Like, had you had some exposure or something that just sparked your interest in technology? I I, I was trying to think about that, like the origin why I was
1: so excited about it. I didn't read about it or feel like this is the next big thing. It was, I think, mostly that. During the Civil War, we were like within a six-block radius, and that felt like it's a portal to the world. So the internet was starting to pick up, and people starting to to get email addresses, and it felt like this is the cheapest, fastest way to connect to the world, although it's a very expensive machine at the time.
0: And so you got it. What was it like when you unboxed that thing? I mean, what oh, were yeah. the first impressions? Yeah,
1: it was so big <laughs> compared to what we have now. It, it was. A phenomenal experience it, it was like probably the mother of all christmas gifts and like unpacking it felt like the rush not knowing what's going to happen when you turn it on as opposed to when you buy like or when you get a gift that you understand or or know what it is you just want to learn a little bit how how to use it i had no idea where to start so of course like the technician helped us through the unboxing which took like probably a couple of hours by itself
0: and so what happened next? I mean, you mentioned uh, at the beginning that you were maybe aspiring to go to college, but it wasn't clear if that was in your future at that time, or had you and your parents committed that you would figure it out one way or another?
1: They wanted us to go to college, but in my mind, like, I really wanted to study computer science, and it was a zero-sum game. Like, either I'm going to study computer science at the best program, which was the American University of Beirut, or or... I'd rather just do something else with my life as opposed to build the false hope that I might become a programmer or do something professionally with computer science. So I, I opted to uh, finish high school. And in Lebanon, by default, everyone goes uh, like you do your freshman year in high school, and by default, you go to college to do three years and graduate. So I took the decision to opt out, basically. It's not like you opt into going to college. So I decided to go and become a cook in a fast food restaurant across from the American University of Beirut. And I I feel that was the the best decision I've ever done in my life.
0: Why? Why?
1: Uh, Because it was seeing those students on a day-to-day basis. And there is a fundraiser, his name is Sadiq Al-Asad. He's in his 80s now. He's like the most influential person in my life. Used to come and bug me on a regular basis how... I should study computer science. There's something called scholarships, which for a young man who grew up in a civil war has no idea what that even means. I thought it's a loan or something I have to pay later. So I was just like dismissive to the idea until like he bugged me to apply for my SATs and encouraged me to apply like for the computer science program. And to make ends meet, I had to find a day job in addition to to A few gigs I had on the side and I ended up working in the office of advancement. That's how journey started.
0: Prior to becoming a student, you actually started as an employee in the advancement shop. No,
1: that was like uh, uh, day one of me starting in college. I I, like, even with a hundred percent scholarship, I wouldn't be able to commute and like figure out all the costs that I needed to survive college. So, so, my first job, first day was, was at the development office.
0: Now, the listeners are going to have a varying level of understanding of Lebanese history and maybe little or no exposure to American University of Beirut, which really does have an amazing history. And, uh, you know, you've already set the context for your immediate experience post a 15-year plus civil war. Um, but maybe just the, the quick elevator pitch on just what is American University of Beirut? How did it come about? what role has it played? Obviously, we're hearing about uh, the beginning of a a life-changing transformational experience for you, but just maybe a little bit of background would would make sense.
1: Uh, uh, The the most fascinating part is that, to me personally, is I ended up in Central Western Mass, and the origin story of the university started from there. So a group of missionaries from Amherst, the town of Amherst, and, and neighboring towns as well, decided to during the civil war in the US, decided to go to the Middle East during another civil war that was happening in the 1840s in in Lebanon. And they decided to scout different locations to establish a mission. And part of that was to establish the Syrian Protestant College that became the American University of Beirut. So, So the origin story started from Central Mass. They went to the Ottoman Empire at that point, picked Beirut as the location, came back to New York, registered it, chartered it by the state of New York, And over the years it became like i i think the one like american institution that's unparalleled internationally especially in the middle east where at that time uh, uh, most of the scholarships that the u.s government was giving was giving for people to go from all the way from afghanistan to turkey to the american university of beirut so at the signing of the un charter in 1945 in san francisco the university had like the highest number of representatives of any other College because they had all these delegates in different in different, you know, in different uh, countries, so so it had like this huge regional impact. And then during the civil war, it focused more on promoting and keeping liberal arts college, the liberal arts model in in Beirut, and it didn't shut down for
0: a single day. And so you start there as a student, and just I mean, again, context setting is is instruction. In English? Are you fluent in English at this time? Like, what was your level of... At that
1: time, I applied, like, my math and SATs were really well, but my English were terrible. Like, my English scores were, were really terrible. And I had to make a minimum to, to be accepted to the school. So all instruction is in English except for language courses, of course. But it's, it's an American institution chartered by the state of New York. So all American regulations, credit system, everything uh, uh, that you have here is applicable there. So, so I had to learn English on the side and my elementary school teacher ended up mentoring me into like the last uh, segment of like, either I will get in or out at that point, because like you, you're allowed to take as many English tests that you want, but you have to get like the very bare minimum to make it. So at that point, most of my colleagues are trilingual English, French, and Arabic. I'm, I'm one of the very few people in my family who's terrible with languages.
0: And so tell me about uh, both the early experience at college. It had to seem like a dream come true, also be a little bit overwhelming uh, given the the language dynamic you just shared. But then also uh, what's day one on the job in the advancement office like when you probably have li- little context for what that possibly could mean?
1: Yeah, it's a combination of like, excitement and what I'm missing. So as again, like I was making around $200 a month as a cook. So in my mind, I cannot think like 15 years ahead or 20 years ahead to where we are right now, me and you on this podcast. I'm thinking that I'm going without any income for something that I don't know the return, to, the return on investment for. And I'm stressed out, but like I can see the opportunities in front of me. So I finished my first semester I became like a lab instructor teaching a one credit course. Usually it's a graduate student who does that. I was like obsessed with computer science, but at the same time, because of my work in advancement, I'm still as fascinated as I was on day one, trying to understand why would a random stranger give money in the 1950s in New Jersey so that in Lebanon, I would go to college. I never met that person. So I grew up in a culture that values a lot of, of charity work, helping your neighbors, taking care of your extended family, which could be like 30, 40 cousins, but, but it's never about like helping a random stranger in a different country. So, so that concept by itself, like really like caught my attention. And I spent obviously my whole career around that that theme.
0: It's amazing, Joe. You know, I've I've shared a couple of times in my entrepreneurial journey um, you know, literally getting the financial aid letter from Brown in my case and sort of seeing this scholarship, uh you know, financial aid that I had been awarded based on family need. and it, it I I had that same level of almost kind of confusion or uh, yeah, just confusion, but but also a sense of gratitude. And so you you not only sort of studied there, and worked there, but it then immediately led to, Uh, your career opportunity and has set you on the path that has led you to this discussion today. But tell me about both your passion for computer science and how that evolved in that environment and how you thought about potentially, um, you know, leveraging that from a a day-to-day perspective, for example, in industry or in a commercial sense versus uh, the path that you chose, which was uh, to immediately move into the advancement field as a full-time professional.
1: Yeah. And it's a tension that still is ongoing in my life i i chose sides but it took me a while to do that so so in the first few years i figured out that i can i can fix things from within advancement like pick my lens as it and advancement or advancement services or try to reinvent operations and reinvent things but my heart was still with if i spend my time raising money there are people like me and my family members Can actually go to college and it would transform their families and I don't have children but then my children will be going to college and their children will likely be deciding if they want to go to college or not at at that point it's becoming a a tougher proposition to 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 convince people with but when you think about it it's it's it started with me trying to apply like this is the practicum component so if you think about it this is when we started doing some automation and advancement we started moving our operation systems, like 80s, 90s, to actual information systems from like the actual cards. So the first six years I was managing advancement services teams, we kept the, the white cards with your address and like we like uh, kind of wipe it clean and then like update it with the new address that you have. And uh, uh, when we want to get in touch with you, we send someone like to go search. I was that person in the first four years uh, until I graduated and you take that out and like kind of put the card in front of you, put a placeholder, then you have to return the card. So, so the opportunity for automation was phenomenal. And I did a lot of that, a lot of reports that we had to do manually when people asked for, we just automated and like had them being sent by email. In 2006, there was similar to today's climate. There was a war between Hezbollah and Israel. Like we, we had to actually keep the office running and we had a medical center that we had to raise money for like people who are coming into it and the trauma they were dealing with, or in some cases injuries. So, so we did a full campaign that that was done based on Skype, VPN and working remotely. So when you think of what happened in COVID, those are like things when, when you're in that climate, you have to use technology and innovate. But the problem is when not everyone else is using it, even you will stop using it and feel like this is no longer relevant to the community or, to the global market so in this case there were technologies that i've been seeing in 2003 4 5 and 6 that were available to all of us but very few of us were using them and i actually used them in a crisis time but then everyone else stopped using them and i stopped using them as well i think that's the the, the difference between that time and this time this is no longer optional for any of us and we're either going to miss the boat and be, be less productive and how we serve our donors and transform their experience, or we're we going to be at the forefront of doing that.
0: And so it sounds like just that context, a, a really great alignment of your skills and interests, feeling a deep appreciation and inspiration for the philanthropic experience that you had wanting to pay it forward, but also an opportunity to bring technology and automation to literally essentially like an old school library card system. Um, And so that all makes a ton of sense. Tell me about the decision to actually move to New York City, become a fundraiser, and what that experience was like. Had you traveled previously? I mean, that just had to be a massive, massive move.
1: Yeah, and it was crazy because I decided to move in 2008, which was at the heart of, financial crisis so i started my career during the financial crisis and at the time the vice president at the american university of beirut is was steve jeffrey who was my first mentor on on kind of like thinking about advancement as a whole it was the only person i knew who worked in other universities was a vice president in other places uh, uh, spent his career in the us that was his first job that's uh, an international job and funny enough like we were talking after that war about like what's next and how i'm thinking about my future and i told him i'm really interested in becoming a fundraiser and he kind of like mentored me throughout the process to actually figure out how how would that look like the the coolest thing that happened to me recently is i went to my first alumni function at clark and it was a basketball game and his granddaughter was there she was transferring to clark and i got to see abby abby there It, it was like a really cool full circle for a, a, someone, a fundraiser from Philadelphia or Pennsylvania area, deciding to go to Beirut, mentoring me to come to the US. I end up in New York with AUB at MIT and, and Cambridge, moved to Worcester to be with Clark, and then there there is his granddaughter in my first event, which which was like really cool full circle.
0: Amazing. And and tell me more about making that transition. It's two thousand eight. You you were there until two thousand fourteen getting out in the field, you securing visits. I mean, just tell me about, because that's a huge shift from, I'm going to be the guy that gets us off of, you know, paper cards into automation and technology to I'm a fundraiser in New York city, you know, maybe representing us around the, you know, entire United States, which you've not really traveled or experienced at this point. I mean, it just had to be uh, just, just like new, new experiences and memories. I mean, like what are some of the memories that really stand out from that time?
1: I think if I attribute that transition, like the ease of that transition, I would say the the brain drain that was happening in the country contributed to the fact that most of my classmates left the country already and they were in Dubai or Saudi Arabia or London or the US or or France, like trying to like kind of get out for a better life or or to do their masters. So at that time, most of my friends, I'm in, in my 20s at that time, uh, most of my friends are in their 50s so, so if I'm to attribute how I was engaging with different constituencies especially older donors I, I would attribute it to Hassan Krayim and Nazir Derwish who were my close friends one of them is a professor at the American University of Beirut they were in their like 50s at the time 40s 50s and you just grow a pool of friends that are similar to your donor pool and it happened organically that I wasn't intimidated by sitting with someone who's a billionaire or a journalist or a talk show host or a professor. And I was developing that informally and like subconsciously without thinking about it. And when I moved to New York, it all became clear to me. I I, I started using data basically to, to, to kind of help uh, make that transition. So it became clear to me that I have to look for people who are counter cyclical who are not being affected by by what's going on. And to do that, you have to like download one Excel at a time and try to think through what's going on in that particular geography, who's most likely to give. And based on that, you do it the old fashioned way, phone calls, emails, send letters and be persistent. And at that time, I I think like two years later, I had my first interaction with Evertrue. I don't know if I I told you that. I had no idea who you were, but I knew what Evertrue was. And that visualization was the first time on my first iPhone was like to visualize how data, uh, 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 like I'm looking at a city and I'm not looking at Excel files anymore. I'm looking at, okay, I'm meeting with Brent and next to him, this is like four other people who could be potential prospects or potential meetings or stewardship or, or kind of making the best use of my time. So at that time, technology was my gateway, but meeting with people was like, I'm the kid who just came from campus and I'm bringing all the stories and I'm comfortable to talk about my personal life and how my life was transformed as well. So I had lots of mentors in that sphere. Most of them were were at the American University of Beirut and and a lot of them were all of these people in our amazing industry that you knock on their doors and they're traditionally your your competitor but like they give you like kind of the, the keys to the castle and tell you like all the challenges they're facing all their strategies what's working what's not and kind of democratizing that, that approach to philanthropy
0: i love your uh sort of stumbling upon Evertrue, and just to set a little bit of context for you i think we've talked about this but you know the the original idea it, it was really you know once i got exposure to the fundraising world we were getting you know spreadsheets from you know blackbot or advance or salesforce whatever it was and it just seemed Crazy to me that it was now so easy to find a great restaurant on Yelp, you know, anywhere in New York, or the perfect house that matched your budget anywhere on Zillow. Right. And if I wanted to find a donor that might be able to change somebody's life, I had to wade through out of date spreadsheets. It was like, how are we doing this better for, you know, hamburgers and coffees and condos than we are for? philanthropy and so that was really uh, i mean a lot of the early inspiration was just trying to you know copy what we knew consumers were getting accustomed to in other parts of their lives which is frankly still how we get a lot of our inspiration uh today
1: and i i think i told you that i really appreciated that you and others who are creating this these kind of companies that they're augmenting what we can do and without you like really like we can't just work with big for-profits who have a different business model are solving for different issues and then they're tailoring something for us and an advancement or for us and non-profits. So I, I really appreciate your frustration turning into a fantastic company and, and a great product and a cool podcast and so, so grat- grateful that we're, we're partnering on this.
0: Well, we're just getting started, man. And, and yeah. it's it's fun to, to talk about yeah. that. Now, I also just have to ask, did you fall in love with New York, the U.S. in general? Just ignore the work stuff for a minute. Just what was like life like relative to um, what you would shared previously?
1: So first time I flew, remember, I didn't have money when I was going to college. So when I graduated, the first flight I've ever taken was Beirut, London, London, New York. So it was a connecting flight. So I landed in Manhattan as the first thing I've seen besides Beirut. So I was like over the moon and we had like on day two we had dinner at the VP's house with like other five vice it was like during the board week and I was still in Beirut but like I was also collaborating with the New York office on their use of technology and he asked me how did you find New York I said I should be moving here in five years and he started laughing so Steve the vice president is laughing and then this is how like we kept the conversation like over five years to like this is how it would look like if I want to move to New York to I really want to become a fundraiser. And this is like kind of a job description or how it would look like. And then it, it evolved into like the, the person who was the director there at the time having vacancies and then selecting me for that role.
0: Amazing. Tell me about the decision to uh, join MIT, which had to seem like a whole a whole next level, just given your interest in in computer science and i'm sure you know you had awareness of it throughout your life but yeah uh, you know tell me about the decision and then just tell me about some of the highlights you you've shared with me previously just obviously things you're comfortable sharing publicly, yeah. <laughs> but, but just some of the donors or or constituents that you were able to spend time with and uh just yeah the highlights that, that stand out
1: yeah so, so when you think of the american university of beirut it's probably like as the first president I interacted with, John Walterberry used to say, it's like, it will teach you how to think. So it's not what you know, it's how to think. This this is the to him the summary of what the liberal arts education is about. So for me, if I studied in a place like MIT, not that I will ever be accepted to it. I, I think I would have focused more on impact and learning and doing things on my own. I, I felt like I really blended more and felt more like home in, in a liberal arts Environment, so it's not surprising that when I got a phone call from from uh, uh, Isaacson Miller at the time, if I'm interested in in considering a vacancy which was the opposite side of the highway of me traveling to the Middle East to fundraise for MIT, I, I, I laughed and I said to to the person who was calling me that I, I can think of like five or six people who are more qualified than me. Uh, I have no interest in leaving the American University of Beirut. And if I want to work in a big university that is like less hard, more impact, I'd rather go work in a Citibank or somewhere like where I can make money and I can define my own impact in a sense. So that person started laughing and he said, okay, I respect your opinion, but you have no idea what like MIT's role in the world is or the kind of people that you will be working with. Just have this one Skype call with Tuli Banerjee. And I'm so glad I actually took that call. She's one of the most transformative people I met with. The way she thinks about people and the minutia of like things that are happening in your personal life and the largest strategy to close like $300 million plus gifts all at the same time is phenomenal. And, and as a leader, you know it from your work. Like You have to do both simultaneously at any given day. So I I met with Thule, I met with the team and at some point it hit me that I can actually make a bigger impact in the world if I'm in a place like MIT and I can learn a lot and I can help my community in a place like the American University of Beirut. So, so I ended up moving to Boston and I was lucky that they selected me for the role.
0: What are some of the favorite experiences there?
1: Oh, uh, I met my wife. So my first day... In, in uh, Boston, there was a blizzard. And from my wartime experience, I know that uh, you, you know it probably from uh, uh, uh Wait, did some you, people did in the New York Times. Up,
0: you showed up in like the winter of 2015 when it was 100 inches of snow.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like the, the worst time to move to Boston. Uh, I ended up, like I think Tom Friedman mentioned it, that like there was a small bar in Lebanon that would open 365 days no matter if there is a war or not. So when he was a war correspondent, they used to go there. And the reason is it's in a hotel and in hotels, if you have an outside uh, uh, restaurant or vendor, they have to open 365 days. So I started researching restaurants or bars within like the the vicinity of where I'm living in Cambridge. And I came across the Liberty Hotel and I ended up meeting my wife. So that's like kind of like probably the best thing that happened from that, that MIT experience. And not to to minimize it, but uh, uh, every day I went to MIT, it was really inspiring. Like working with a team, like we had around 150 to 200 people whose whole job is to make the world a better place and try to facilitate that through philanthropy. So at the time, we're talking about the American University of Beirut raising like 30, 35 million a year and coming to MIT and we're launching like a $5 billion campaign and we ended up closing 6.2 billion. and you're working with people in every single geographic location and every single ethnicity, background, industry, and trying to see what kind of impact can you help them with with their work. So my my personal favorite was a gift that we got from uh, uh, the the Al Ghurair Foundation in Dubai, because part of doing that gift was like building a relationship with the CEO who started on her first day when, I had my first meeting when they were starting to build that foundation and we ended up developing a friendship and a relationship where she built her programs as we were building our program in the Middle East and one of the key things that she thought like kind of it's a big bet is to invest on uh, open learning and digital education and some of the workshops that MIT did in that space with three universities including AUB enabled like some sort of like capacity building or or like the foundation of what was used in COVID. So to me, like playing a minor role with that indirectly because of philanthropy of someone in Dubai giving to MIT in Cambridge to help people across the Middle East was like phenomenal. And it shows you like the, the impact
0: and scale of what the MIT work does. And so tell me about the decision to explore vice president roles and how the specific opportunity at Clark came about. And I know how excited you are for the opportunity for Clark as a university, but also to really push the envelope around pragmatic innovation in advancement. Uh, uh,
1: The short version is there is a guy called Jack Gorman. If he calls you, don't take the call. He's from Isaacson Miller. He's the same person who talked to me about, about American University of Beirut. I called him in this instance because I wanted his advice on some restructuring we were doing in the office. And he never reached out to me beyond like working together on filling vacancies at MIT, but he never reached out proactively because ethically he placed me at MIT and he would never talk to me about that. But as we were talking about the restructuring and he gave his free advice uh, uh, to me, We were talking about other aspects and the name of of David Fithian, whom he knew at Harvard and at the University of Chicago. At that time, he became the president of of Clark University. And he was telling me informally that, by the way, if you would like to have lunch with him, he's he's looking at kind of how to think about the campaign and how to think about advancement. And I, I felt like it's really intriguing. I wasn't thinking about going the vice president route at that time, I was very happy with uh, uh, my choice of being like a principal gift officer, managing a principal gift team of like five. And we had like Thule who's managing the whole principal giving program at at that time. So I I took that lunch and between 2018 and 2020, I did two studies. One was part of a cohort of, of fellows at MIT. Which is called the leader to leader program where we're studying how change happens at the university what drives it and what restrains it and we identified kind of like the ingredients of of how change happens in higher ed and then i replicated that from 2018 and 2020 by interviewing 20 people in in, uh, iv plus universities to look at how transformational giving happens and when someone gives you a nine-figure gift or you're launching a campaign, what are the ingredients of those of that success? And then we we tried to test it with around 35 universities. I presented it to the Smithsonian, so we tested it in different contexts. So I'm going to this first lunch with David Fithian and, and he's telling me about his thinking and what he's thinking about the schools and at that time, I think Stanford had like five out of those seven variables. Most other universities had like four at any given time when they're launching a campaign or, or launching a school or an initiative. And I'm seeing every single one of them like light up in my mind. And I was blown away. I probably like did terrible in, in the interview or or in that conversation in that lunch because I was so thrilled and so excited. And to me, I was getting like all these light bulbs. Like there is a place that has all these seven variables. At the time they're they're launching a campaign you have a president who's kind of like out there prioritizing philanthropy and at the same time it's a place that combines both AUB and MIT it's a liberal liberal arts college that's doing consequential research that has a global impact not just in Worcester but throughout the world so I fell in love with the idea and I, I went with my wife and our dog Toby and we toured around the campus, it was around moving day and you can feel the energy of the place. We had like 15 students play with Toby and ask us if we need any help. And it like, at that point, my wife told me like, don't mess it up, like they, they, you seem to be alive and, and happy. Just like, don't mess up the, the interview process and the rest of the history as they say.
0: Well, I love it. Congrats on not messing it up. Those are so,
1: <laughs> so far, I didn't.
0: inspirational words uh, from her. That's, that's great. And so, Uh, Tell me about the experience so far, and let's talk a little bit about just the opportunity from an advancement perspective. What do you see? What are you excited about? And um, how have you staged, I guess, your, your time over the last roughly year? Because there's a million things when you're in that vice president role that you're getting pulled into now that... When you were in a more defined role at MIT or AUB, you weren't weren't having to navigate. I know that you're excited and challenged by those um, opportunities, but what what has stood out over the last year?
1: Yeah, I think if I would summarize it, going back to the change at MIT, the, the study that we did, at that time, it was clear that for the faculty and the students to do the best they can do in the world, as staff, we have to give it our best, but we have to minimize what we are changing so that they're not spending their energy trying to understand what's happening to their 401k or how do they get in touch with an alum. So it felt like the most disruptive faculty and, and uh, students who are changing industries expect you to kind of like keep doing what we are doing as long as it's not messed up. So so when you're looking at your personal innovation, like or your role in the innovation cycle, you're always scouting for people like you, Brent, and, and other great partners that we have to look at what they can provide, so we can minimize that disruption internally. Th- that's not the case at Clark. At Clark, I think like if I would summarize the vision of the president is the culture of possibility, and I ended up building with the team and with, with stakeholders and did, like a really long extended listening tour. We built a plan for a really ambitious four X campaign that we're going to launch over the next few years. And we built it not in a traditional way, but taking into account our limitations and hiring or expanding or, or budget or all of these considerations. And when I went to the president, he was very grateful for it and he was willing to to go ahead with it. He posed and asked a question. And Probably this is how you and I ended up like having all these in-depth conversations. And he does that on a regular basis with almost everyone in the community. And the question was very simple. Is this the best we can do for Clark? And in seven years, if we look back at this campaign, was this the best shot we had? At the time we were deploying NXT, which is, which is a great product, but it was announced 11 years earlier. And the decision to deploy it happened like a year or two before that. And as you know, like you need time to, to make a pivot in, in those kinds of technologies. At MIT also, we were like working on, on breakthrough research in AI and its impact on every single discipline. But we were using also a technology that was not up to date. And, and because you're launching a $6.2 billion campaign, you cannot pause and take a pit stop before you actually make a, a change or make an impact. So we ended up we ended up defaulting to keeping technology where it is and adding some solutions around it. And the same with the American University of Beirut at the time. When I was there, we had limitations with budget. So when he asked that question, I had to go back to the drawing board. It happened around the same time I, I met with you and we were at the Case Summit for Advancement Leaders. And you, you can't play with so many dials. There's budget, there's staffing, there's technology, there's like uh, volunteers. There's like few dials you can play around with. And and at that point, I think it hit me that what what MIT was about in terms of vision was about being bilingual and trying to have computer science experience and uh, biology and work on, on human health or computer science and finance and work on disruptions happening in AI and finance or or digital currencies or what have you. So at that point it became very clear that I think I can use the background that I had of like 70 years out of my eight years at MIT working on selling the AI a, a dream and, and the research and its impact on, on our health and on the planet and all of these things and my background in computer science and merge it with my passion and advancement. So when we started talking, uh, we realized that like things are moving really fast. I adopted an email address in 1996, 1997. Not most of my friends used it. I was a late adopter for iPhone. I I used my first iPhone, I think in 2012. I was more stuck with BlackBerry. My friend Rola insisted that I should be an iPhone guy. Like technology is moving differently and I'm like kind of slowing down on on my move. And with, with ChatGBT, we were talking about its deployment and it wasn't even nine months since it started. So it's no longer years and decades before the technology starts. So between that, between the question from the president, between having to do a campaign smarter and not waiting another seven to 10 years to use AI after we finish this campaign, we ended up proposing what we ended up working with you on, which is like uh, uh, focusing on technology and AI within the advancement setting and developing a lab that will just work on that with one partner, which is you in this case.
0: Yeah no look in in just for context for our listeners and we usually don't focus too too much on ever-true technology for for these podcasts it's not meant to be um, about that it's it's about Joe's story but I think in this case uh, <laughs> it's
1: part of my story
0: sorry sorry yeah, no, just my point is it's fair to say that we are aligned in our sincere belief that effectively harnessing AI. Uh, will be transformational for philanthropy. There is such an opportunity to synthesize data, to prescribe more personalized outreach, to reduce the manual work that fundraisers are doing, to elevate the donor experience and really create this virtuous flywheel opportunity. Um, and in and, and the ability to do so is far less constrained by software engineering dollars than ever before, you know, the same way that the introduction of the iPhone allowed companies like Evertrue to deliver user experiences to fundraisers that were impossible before, You know, the introduction of platforms like OpenAI and others uh, is allowing us to dream about things that would have just been too unrealistic even a year ago. And so at the same time, we recognize there's a lot of uh, concern uh trepidation hesitation data privacy and that is all valid and I think in every cycle we all have friends that were the first to get the email address and the first to line up for the iPhone and we have friends that were the last to get email uh, and still don't have a smartphone not too many but the, you know once in a while you meet somebody like that and so on that spectrum Joe and I are definitely on the early end of the curve and we, with our teams are really trying to say, okay, how do we dive in responsibly and, and really push the envelope of what's possible. Um, and so then hopefully we can learn some things will work, some things won't work, and then share those stories with many of you who are in different parts of that adoption curve and spectrum, not only as it relates to our, um, day jobs here in the advancement world, but even in our personal lives and just uh you know trying to find ways that we can be part of the bridge to this next technology uh wave for this important world of philanthropy.
1: And if I may add, you beautifully described it. If I may add one thing is I would put an ethical question in front of all of us as well. It, when we're thinking about the ethics of using those technologies, we own that. We can control that variable. But, but when we're thinking also about ethics, let's think about the ethics of not using it. One of the variables that I was early adopter in almost all technologies in my life, except with iPhone, is at that time, I didn't feel like changing my BlackBerry and learning something new, but it wasn't impacting my donors. If I tell you now as a donor that I'm not going to use a computer or an iPhone or talk to you like this, and I'm going to only be comfortable with using a fax because it's safer, it's easier, that's a decision I'm making that's impacting your experience. And ethically, I should be accountable to that as well, or it should be part of my, my decision variables when I'm making that decision. There was a recent study by BCG where they asked, you probably saw it, randomly assigned some of their team members to use generative AI. So they use GPT 4.0 and some of them didn't. And you can see the the productivity. I think the quality went up by 40% and productivity by 25%. So when we're thinking about that, like I owe it to our university's finance team and, and the fiscal health of the institution that I do my job in a smarter and faster way while being ethical and giving the donors the best experience. So so the ethical question should have both components. How can we protect donor privacy? How can we do things that we're 100% as certain as we can in in its societal impact or how it could or could not be used? But at the same time, we have to also look at what's the ethical considerations and implications of not using that technology and not giving people the, the stewardship and the impact that they deserve and their donor experience.
0: I love it, Joe. It's a a great way to summarize it. And uh, let me start to conclude by asking you this. What do you hope we can say that we've achieved three years from now? What do you hope is possible three years from now that isn't possible today?
1: The, The idea of partnering with you or with like anyone can partner with any other company, was because I don't know the answer to that question. I think it started from the fact that if I knew the answer, I would partner with one product or one service or one technology or someone that I think can uh, uh, do that repeatedly as the co- as the technology is moving. I think this technology is moving so fast and I think we chatted that while we're thinking about ChatGBT, one of our alum was talking about GAT technology and what's what might happen in the next six months to a year that might transform the early part of of, uh, identifying potential donors and like visualizing our networks and what have you. So at this point, I think what we need to do is in three years, be ready to embrace technology or evaluate it and say, we're not gonna embrace this particular technology as we're moving and have that knowledge within our teams that they both have the concerns of the donors, the best experience that we can put together and at the same time a, a, a product or a service or or an experience or relationship that we're all proud of the donors you from your side on the industry on us as a university
0: i love it i hope we can uh explore that together i know that we will and and i will just say it is remarkable how quickly it's moving there was this uh open AI dev day on november 6th we haven't even talked since then but we've been uh, furiously working through the possibilities and just every quarter, every every year uh, for sure, but every quarter, month, it even seems like the possibilities are even more exciting. And so there's going to be this balance of how do we dream really big and, and elevate the aspirations for the donor, for the staff, so that we can continue to create space between the index cards librarian experience that you were describing at the beginning um, while at the same time recognize where this industry is and and calibrate around the pace of change so that we're you know moving fast but also bringing people with us in an appropriate way and that's never never an easy uh sort of line to walk
1: yeah
0: cool so, so glad yeah. we'll
1: be walking with you for the next yeah.
0: years. no doubt no doubt well um with that joe any uh closing thoughts or, you you know, message for your team or shout outs that you want to give? Are you hiring at all right now? I mean, what else would you want our audience to know? And and obviously, how do they best stay in touch with you? Uh, On the shout outs, we're we're adding a lot of
1: new team members who are amazing. I, I would give a shout out to Jan Dodd, who's the most excited and pleasant person to work with. She's always smiling, always coming in with the best energy there is. And I'm so grateful to have her on the team. Uh in terms of hiring, yes, we're hiring and we're ramping up for the campaign. We're not gonna slow down because of using technology. We're actually increasing the size of the team, but we're doing it in a smart way, as opposed to just throwing in more headcounts. We're trying to focus more on not just staffing, but looking at our existing staff and how we can provide them with professional development opportunities and focus on their well-being and technology is a, is a key partner on that. Uh, in terms of final thoughts, I, I think when, when you think about a new field or a technology, it's really a lot to absorb. I would advise anyone who's still doubtful about using it, just pick one pilot at work or one personal project you want to work on in a personal capacity and just play around with it and see and see what it does i i think when we think of chat gbt or at least the way i was thinking about it i was thinking of my experience with chat bots and trying to have them answer a question and when i started visualizing that as a person with different hats, my questions became different so if you think of it as fundraising consultant they're not going to be a- as qualified or as experienced as some of the best consultants we have in the world but You can share a document or a thought or an idea and see how they can react to it. If you want to draft or edit something, just like use it in your personal life and get comfortable with it. And it will help you demystify it and make it feel less like rocket science and more like you're chatting to someone and trying to learn more about their thinking and how they evolve their thinking.
0: I love it. Let's end on a kind of high note, just fun experience that we've had. As you know, we believe that there's tremendous opportunity at the intersection of career movement, career stewardship, which has not historically been a thing, right? We steward people if they make a gift, but if they get a new job, we haven't necessarily. And then pipeline development, which is top of mind for everybody. And so, you know, as we've gone through some of our early experiences together, we've tried highlighting that potential and uh, you have acted upon it in in a big way. And we don't need to name names necessarily, but I'm just curious to kind of get your your view of the potential around career movement, career stewardship, pipeline development, based on that experience and what advice you might have for other leaders who maybe haven't yet considered that as a part of their strategic priorities.
1: Yeah, it, it, I think the best way to think about it is going back to the donor, thinking of each team member as an individual. And the the, the structures that we have are like pyramid more or less. So we know that we have X members of the team. Some of them are going to grow into different positions and some of them have to go somewhere else. So if we take that as kind of an assumption and think of their experience as something that we can enable and they can go somewhere else and then come back, our our view of mentorship shifts, just like people supported us in our own career moves. In my case, this is my third organization in 21 years. I was very happy and enjoying my experience in each one of them. Uh, I I feel like when you're thinking about career moves, think of like what would work for that particular person, just like when we think about what would work for that particular donor, and then give them the best experience they could get, because then you become their ally for life. And most of us are gonna need those talents at any given time. So if you're willing to surrender, like, them staying on the team for an extra year or two and just let them go learn something new and enjoy another experience and if you can prove to them through stewardship that you're worthy of them coming back and working with you then that's great and if not th- then maybe they're in a better place my, my best example of that is is ramia who was one of the people who started and took my first job in Be- his first job was my job in beirut and then after that like I helped mentor him a little bit. And then at some point he became the chief advancement officer in a school in Jordan. And now he's in Houston and I see him as a peer at some point, I could work for him and he could work for me. It's like, we we just need to get rid of like the the short-term thinking of like, what's going to happen in the next six months. And can I convince this person to still work for me or deliver for me as opposed to what's our shared experience together.
0: I love it. Joe, thank you so much for sharing your story from, uh, Working as a cook across the street from American University in Beirut to leading the shop at Clark with big ambitions for where uh, the university and the industry can go, Uh, you are the epitome of the uh, transformational change that can happen with higher education. And in the midst of plenty of criticism and and challenging headlines, uh, it's just always refreshing to, to see and uh, and, and sort of feel the, the benefit firsthand. So thank you for sharing. Thank
1: you. So I feel like I, I stayed consistent on what I do. I used to flip burgers to serve the students that way, and now I go raise money for them. So thank you for having me. And Either way, you're helping students. Me share my story.
0: Either way, <laughs> you're helping students. I love it, man. All right, Joe. Thank you so much. Hey, look Joe up on LinkedIn for sure. He's very responsive, super engaging. Uh, reach out, you, you know, ask for a. Uh, just a introductory, exploratory uh, Zoom or phone call—you uh, you won't regret it. And so, with that, I'm going to say thank you, Joe. Uh, Joe uh, Minock, the Vice President for University Advancement at Clark University. Uh, thanks, Joe, and take care, everybody.